Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode contains language and content of an explicit nature. Listener discretion is advised. Before a song is released, a record is produced, or a chorus is written, the musicians that write them think a lot. They live a lot, and they feel a lot. Before the chorus dives into the stories and experiences that shape these artists, and ultimately, the music we hear. I'm your host, Sophia Lopercaro, and this episode's guest is Feist. Feist is somewhat of an icon in my home country of Canada. She has become a figurehead of our indie scene, of our folk songwriters, and she very much carries on the folk traditions of the likes of Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen. She has incredible poetic lyrical prowess that frankly would do them proud. So given all of that, it's obviously an incredible privilege to say that I I got to speak to her. You know, I'm a proud Canadian. And so getting to see people that have contributed to the artistic culture, tapestry, or whatever you want to call it, of my home country is always unbelievably special. And more importantly than that, Feist herself is an incredibly kind and lovely person, and she's written an album here, Multitudes, that is incredibly vulnerable, as as a, a lot of albums, I think, that have come out of the last few years have been. It's existential, it's introspective, it's, you know, a little bit self-deprecating at times, but I think in the bigger sense, it's an album that holds a lot of grace towards self and towards others. Feist talks a lot about motherhood, about navigating grief, about watching her friends navigate their own things, watching other women navigate their own things and teach each other. And I think all in all, it's a record that encourages us to allow ourselves to grow and allow ourselves to look at ourselves and also allow ourselves to not be perfect. And I think that's really the beauty of it. And I think that's why her music touches us the way that it does. I'm not going to be going through the tracks in order per se, but even with that, I still want to start with the opening track because I think it's just a great place to start. You know, Enlightening is a song about um, or actually, you know, what's funny before I even get into that, I just realized something as I was saying enlightening, is it supposed to be a play on words of enlightening as in to be enlightened? Well, as like you said, as a fellow Canadian, you know, the importance of a good pun, don't you? Yes. <laughs> so it might've been, I might've been feeling a little cheeky that I could be speaking about something that's profound and true and resonates on like a non-pun level but it also plays as like a beautiful twist of words you know yeah i i think so 
I, I can't believe I just clocked onto that right now. Literally the second it came out of my mouth because it's the first time that I've said it, you know, like mm. I've been like working and taking notes in silence and then now, yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting because a lot of this album deals with, I mean, deals with the truth in, in many ways in terms of what we choose to share, what we choose to hide, how we choose to grapple with the truth or avoid the truth. And this album in a lot of ways like there's moments on it where there is more of a struggle and yet this song seems to be kind of chasing it like wanting and craving these sort of moments of being hit with with reality um i guess is that something that's that's been a constant for you as a person that you've always kind of wanted these moments of of clarity of realization or is this something that you've kind of learned to embrace over time in your life uh that's a uh well phrased the the trajectory of of a realization that would get you to the place of wanting to face your actual contribution to your reality that's not something that i would say i was even aware existed in my 20s because likely i believed i was on a conveyor belt of a cavalcade of ever-changing exciting plot twists and I'm, I'm aquarius so apparently we love surprises well i can i can corroborate i love surprises i love something occurring at me and then in a way there like a whole reality of playing a kind of defense like a, you know in terms of someone serves you a ball and then you're returning it you know you're not the author of experience but rather getting very good at understanding the play in how to respond to experience you know and it it was maybe um my my um baseline um, hangover from being a teenager um listening to a lot of the cure or whatever <laughs> that i uh i think my contribution usually to any kind of um I don't know, my interior life leaned deeply into the the pleasure of ennui or angst, or um, I, I suppose I didn't even notice that I got better and better and better at looking for drama or feeling uh, that's where profundity was or something. And that um, maybe not having such a grasp on um, life force, you know, the energy inside my actions was secondary to my my kind of I would prefer to just collapse onto my bed and just feel everything and not necessarily know that I could change my conditions by yeah. the way I the way I encountered them you know the kind of that we are a giant lens and we're looking at things in a certain way and we skew we skew what comes at us with our interpretation of it you know my grandma although my mom says she doesn't remember my grandma ever saying this, but she might've only said it once and it resonated with me. So I hung on to it. And she said, the way you look at a man, so he appears to you. And I took me years to kind of unlace that from its verba, verba, verbage <laughs> to realize that the way you look at anything is what it's going to look like, you know? And so enlightening maybe is a, a bit of a, I'm, I'm throwing my sword down at my own feet and saying like, now's the time to try to understand how to, bring more intention for some kind of good times to my my reality and even if conditionally stuff is happening that's difficult outside of me maybe i can try to cultivate an interior response to it that isn't making a bad situation worse or something like that or yeah. understanding that i do have power 
And to name that power in the form of God or something, that's also just take the words where power was external of us and just name them as our own, whatever it is, you know, and and I suppose um, that's something to answer your question in a roundabout way that I didn't have any awareness of until I would say relatively recently. Yeah. Speaking of that, you know, there's a couple songs, and I think these these are sort of ideas that speak to that sort of before that you're talking about. There's this idea of commiseration that's talked about on a few songs on this record, like on Forever Before. I think the other one is of womankind. Like there's that line on Forever Before. I think it's, I thought that love was a commiserate heart. And mm. something about that kind of speaks to what you just said of like, rather than having the agency to change things and face things, it's kind of not only wallowing in things yourself, but kind of remaining around people that you all kind of keep each other in that same space. Yeah, that's that would be true. That maybe there, there's something about intimacy that's tricky where you think that if you're kind of scar sharing or you're, you know, you're sharing your most intimate difficulty with someone that that's, that's like a, it is important. You have to let yourself be seen and known, but there's more to closeness than letting people behind your the curtain where you hid all your shames behind. You know, there's also the seek quiet little joys in your heart or, you know, these are all moving targets that I have yet to figure out how to properly, you know, we have to live these ideals, but at least in so- songs are handy because you can name them, name the ideals, you know. Um, a friend reminded me that I, I, they had just come to the most recent production of the show that I'm doing. That is, it's a bit of an alternative, uh, it's a different take on what it is to engage with an audience. And, um, but it, it's, it's hard to describe and I won't even try, but basically I, afterwards when he was, um, kind of trying to describe what had just happened for him through this, all these sort of trap doors that open inside the, the 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 kind of norm norm normalized dichotomy of performer and artist and we sort of throw a bunch of hinges and trapdoors into that experience and i said yeah well it's just a watery target because it's sort of a watery bullseye you know in that it's there's it's an it the the edges of the bullseye are pretty uh you know there's there's a big aperture to get it right is it's not it's not so precise and songs are like that for me i just name a a version of reality that is maybe unattainable right now or maybe aspirational and and then you can aim at i can aim at it as i continue to sing it for the next 30 years or something yeah i think that's a healthy way to look at things too cuz i mean if you felt like you had everything figured out and you didn't give yourself the grace to kind of be flexible with your experience um, I don't know. I don't or, think that's a good way to live. Yeah, or or make make your goals so precise that it's it's going to be difficult, or, or you know that's sort of a perfectionist's uh, tendency is to believe that there's um, well when you're already so almost perfect, you want yourself to be extra almost there all the time, or or I mean it's it's just a little bit. I mean, being a parent has been teaching me that there is no such thing as a perfect day. And every day there's this opportunity to try again and start over and try again and maybe move the the benchmark of perfection like a little bit closer to my, you know, my solar plexus where reality resides. Whereas that sometimes I don't have any idea what to do, but 
I, I can see my tendency to want to make the day perfect. And I get frustrated about my own, you know, what the boundaries are, like how I've how I've drawn the playing field. And it's sort of this idea of relating is it's like water on the beach. It's like, you know, water lapping up on the beach. There's just always another moment and they're never going to be right. They're never going to be perfect. But if I can just find a way to, you know, widen my version of acceptable, then I think she and I and anyone else that we relate to is, are going to have an easier time to find one another. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it's probably nice for her to have that flexibility too, like, because I think if we want to be perfect for ourselves, we can sometimes, I don't know, I think it's possible to project that onto other people too. So I think it's a good lesson for her to learn when she's young, to allow days and moments to just be what they are. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, going to the third song on this on this album, Love Who We Are Meant To, I almost read this song as, and actually, I'll I'll preface by mentioning um, something that I watched once that I guess for some reason I connected the two together. But there's an interview from a couple years ago that uh, the actor Andrew Garfield did um, shortly after his mother passed away, and he said something really beautiful and really profound that I loved, which was, "Grief is all of the unexpressed love that will remain with us until we pass." Um, and this idea of want, not being able to give people the love that we want to. And I don't know so much if if love who we are meant to is about something in that realm or if it's more about unrequited love or some combination, but something about the just the sweetness of that statement that he made really, for some reason, made me want to draw a line to this song. Well... Yeah, I would say that the thing that I've, I mean, it's a little bit like you, I can't remember exactly how you expressed it earlier about uh, enlightening, choosing a version of like uh, the story in a way doing press is interestingly, um, it's been hard for me to find a way to speak about this record. And of course, I'm grateful that people are curious to speak about it or that there's a conversation even to be had about this group of songs because I, it's just my life that I've kind of made into an origami and turned into a record. And it's just it's just a bunch of foldings of various theories or realities or or resonations or complete, I'm lost. And so I'm going to put a breadcrumb in the forest in the form of this particular line so I can re-encounter that idea again in 10 years, in five years, in six months, 30 shows from now. There, there is a lot of breadcrumbs scattered throughout the record with certain lyrics because um, yeah, I guess I just take lyrics. lyrics um, there, I'm I'm singing inward more than outward. I'm singing. There's craft in enjoying formulating a a, a kind of a, a beginning, middle, end, like putting a little bell jar over a feeling, and and then that's a song in a way. It's sort of a just a little let's let's just capture this little rarefied air of this particular feeling in time. But but really, as I as I've had this experience now, some songs I've written 20 years ago that I sing now, and I hear those words over and over, almost like an incantation, because in a concert setting, singing, it's not the same as talking. It's not so cerebral, almost like athletes might call flow state. You know, it's a place other than thinking, you know, singing is probably landing a, a perfect foul shot is a place other than thinking, you know? And, um, 
And so in trying to speak about the record or in responding to people's conversations about what they hear in the record, it maybe got a little bit too, um, I felt myself oversimplifying things that don't, they they are in in their experiential messiness. I can make a song out of it and it looks like it has squared off corners. It looks like I've made it tidy, but my living of it is still very untidy, you know? And, um, and the fact that I, I lost my father and became a mother and those things became a little bit too bookendish and oversimplified as well in speaking in the last, I've had the experience over the last few months, like I've had a second wave of grief about losing my dad because I also lost something of him that is, I guess I, I had a initial, um, you know, around the release of the album, a lot of conversations, like many, sometimes many in a row, you know, and in, in whatever form, and grief talks to grief, you know, so it can be unrequited love grief, it can be the loss of something, it can be a lie you told eight years ago that you are still holding with shame, or it grief just talks to grief, and it all reignites, you know, you the loss of my grandmother, like so many years ago, it speaks to the loss of my father. And, you know, the, imagining my daughter having to attend my own funeral one day, you know, it's all good. <laughs> it's, it's, it all folds into one feeling of deep sadness, you know, and everyone who has become leveled by this um, kind of universal thing, as a friend said to me the other day, um, that this thing called life, it's a, you know, it's terminal. This is a terminal condition. It Everyone is terminal, you know? And so that, you know, that kind of thing is, is really hard to fathom. And, um, and I think I just lost some interior um, shape of my own memories of my dad in talking about him in this very um, like two-dimensional realm, which is storytelling about something that's way more complex than the story. I mean, I'm not Wendell Berry. I can't make a perfect, I'm not Steinbeck. I'm not making a perfect nuanced exploration of a feeling. I'm just writing a four minute, you know, or or a series of songs that are uh, meant to speak to me, not to the Nobel laureate committee or something. So it's just somehow feels um, like a, like a strange, I, I gave, I gave it willingly because one by one, each of these conversations felt of value. And I also felt there was something important about my own experience of talking about the writing of these songs, it was um, just something incredibly private and it felt real. And I thought, why would I make a, um, a, a fiction about something that is already, it's just so important to me. I wanted to tell the story honestly. So I, I don't know, I guess what I'm saying is that like you're speaking about what, what is that song? Is it, is it a collections of, of griefs? Is it a, is it a, like, and I'm saying, the the place where art meets life and life meets art has been the, it's it's almost I'm living it still because these songs came out of a place where the Venn diagram of art and life were really muddied and they were the same thing through the pandemic there was the idea that I'd never play another show there was all these ideas of reinventing yourself and I found songs were like the most honest companion that I had and I was so grateful for them and I was I wrote more than I've ever written in my life in a time where I believe nobody will maybe ever hear these. Um, but something happened and it's almost like a, a perfect fold over where now the art has in, in, impacted my life and that I've kind of lost something that's really precious to me about my own feelings around the loss of my dad. 
So it's been, I'm, I'm only, I'm just trying to characterize this with you because it's, it's been my experience the last couple of months of like a second wave of grief has come from yeah. talking about grief. It's so strange, even it's, though it wouldn't be the case. It just is. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter if it should or shouldn't, like you said, it is, and you're allowed to have that experience. Um, there is another interview I did recently um, with an artist and she was saying that she used to like always feel like she needed to get every little bit of nuance and every aspect of a certain experience into a song, like just kind of cram everything in. And she realized over time that one, she doesn't have to do that. Sometimes a song doesn't have to cover the entire ground of a certain experience. Sometimes it can capture a piece of it and that's more than enough again like you said like it's a four minute song it's not a 500 page psychoanalysis of of a lived experience so there can be beauty sometimes in just capturing that one little piece of of a larger experience yeah yeah i would agree i would say also the the form of songwriting is i i it's very it's kind of experimental because you can take time and fold four minutes into talking about a single split second of a, of a sensation or a eureka or something, or you can make it be about a hundred years or a thousand years or the human condition, or, or you can leave time in a bridge and just talk about time from the perspective of a star. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's like the most open of all the formats, I would say. I mean, maybe painting, maybe abstract painting can be, you can, you can be referring to anything through, you know, a five by four wooden frame, you know, and the song is not dissimilar in that sense. It's not answering to narrative, you know, or, but, it, but it can. <laughs> yeah. So, and again, that's kind of the beauty of songwriting is that you can go either way with it, you know, or you can do a combination of both, which frankly is sometimes like my favorite kinds of songwriting. And I think some of the great people, like the great songwriters, like two of our, our Canadian legends, Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell, they were able to kind of weave between these very specific literal ideas and these very abstract um, or religious or just fascinating images. And, and there's a magic to that. Um, I also think, you know, weirdly, this is going to take me to hiding in plain sight because the opening line of it is everybody's got their shit. And oh, hiding out in the open. It's funny. My mom thinks hiding. Sorry. I, you know why I keep saying hiding in plain sight? I think I wrote it down at one point and then I forgot to correct it. No, but uh, it's but funny because that's what my mom calls it. Too. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, hey, mom, I don't even correct her, but I figured I should tell you. <laughs> I, I'm glad you did. Um, I don't know why I wrote it that way. But the point is like that opening line, everybody's got their shit i again this is like one of my favorite things in songwriting i like when people can have these beautiful metaphors but also sometimes just say the thing mm. you know yeah that's the thing right it's yeah just, we do <laughs> we do we do yeah we do we really do um and i think as we kind of move through like there's a lot of songs again we talked about facing truths and there's, I guess the interesting thing with a lot of the songs on this record that really are kind of unpacking things is that some of them feel like some of them are more like repetitive and calm and mantra-like, like become the earth, which is, you know, grappling again with the concept of, like you said, life is terminal. 
Um, but there's something so calm about it because of the way it repeats and it's a cycle. But then like if I listen to like Martyr Moves or like Borrow Trouble, it feels more like either it's just being honest about something that's, you know, uh, a little trickier or or it's still grappling with them. And I guess the question is, is there a reason for you that there's kind of that combination, like some that feel a little more like calm and mantra-like and some that are just kind of in a very raw way, kind of unpacking things? Well, it's funny, you, you characterizing things in that way just gave me a different perspective because of course I kind of, it's sort of like how you look in your closet and you see your clothes as the thing that go on your body. Oh yeah, there we are. <laughs> I for for context for anybody listening, I am quite literally in a closet right now, standing next to a bunch of clothes. <laughs> yes, and and when you look at your clothes, you remember uh, that like those pants make me feel like this, and this dress is not for every day, and that you know what I mean. You kind of know they're your tools in a way to um, you know go move through the world and <clears throat> and songs the songs on this record, I, I don't really have a lot of perspective on. I, I see them as pieces of a puzzle, like a kind of a three-dimensional <clears throat> puzzle, high, low, in, out, you know. And um, maybe something like Come the Earth is a bit more of a, you pull the lens way back. Um, I'm trying to think of the extemporary. Ext I'm trying, there's a word actually my manager and producer co-producer for the record Robbie Lackertz he the other day I, I referenced how Steinbeck to mention him again because I love Steinbeck uh, zooms in and then zooms way out and there's these chapters where it'll just be the perspective of a fly in a diner uh, or or just explaining how the landscape works and where the barn is in relation to the tree or something and then it goes back into the narrative and and some of these songs are a little bit these i wish i remembered the word he taught me for when there's these chapters that that interrupt the narrative and anyway we can both look it up after but yeah i'm like do i know or no i don't well, something I like the earth is not the specifics of anyone's life it's more it, it is a bit of a like go up in a hot air balloon to the very 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 beginning of the stratosphere and look down at all of it and imagine um kind of a much wider lens image and then something like martyr moves is very much in the in the mechanisms of relationship and how what it is what commitment is and what does it look like and how can it be experienced through time and how do you show up to it um and you know and what was the other one you mentioned uh uh borrow trouble yeah borrow trouble sort of the our again what are we contributing to our own are we making a bad situation worse you know or are we making a bad situation a little bit better <laughs> and only you know only i know what we contribute to our own uh you know crappy day our own our own uh moment where we're completely we feel snookered <laughs> um, that's a word i haven't heard in a minute that's a very canadian word if i'm not mistaken yeah well another uh another uh, my other co-producer Maki on the record that's Maki's one of Maki's favorite isms is when you're really when you're just like the quicksands got you and you're just snookered <laughs> so I stole it from him because there are lots of moments now that I've he taught me that um, I don't actually I would have never I play eight ball or whatever it's called you know pool where you 
But snooker is a different thing. And I think there's a way to really get truly cornered in that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But I know what the word implies. Yeah. Also, very 30-second tangent. Because I grew up in Montreal, there's a lot of Canadianisms that I actually missed out on because a lot of what I know is, like, French-Canadian slang. Um, but I've definitely heard snookered in passing. So okay. I love that you brought it up. I feel connected to my homeland. Well, he's um, from Ottawa, so there you go. It's, there you go. All roads lead back to the hinterlands of Ontario or Quebec. Good old Ontario, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, on that note, I, I guess I want to pop over to Of Womankind because it's a... It's a really beautiful and important song on this record, but in some ways it feels like a kind of beautiful outlier. Like it's just kind of different from a lot of the other songs on this record. And, you know, and something I often do on this podcast is, you know, kind of say like, this is how I interpreted it, but please correct me because I think there's some, you know, that's kind of the beauty of it is learning the original story behind it. But I almost read it as both, you know, like, talking about the power and beauty of womanhood as well as you know the you know like having to carry mace or keys uh between your fingers at night but it almost felt like there was like a channeling of the energy of womanhood as well like trying to like use that power that we have as women to kind of get yourself through whatever life journeys and life lessons you're going through yes and i would say um I would say maybe it's the intergenerational piece that I hadn't, again, maybe it's something I'm, I'm, a, I'm valuing even more and more now is I find myself really seeking out my elders and my mentors and who are the women who are aspirational, who are stepping into their 70s and 80s and with an extra twinkle in their eye or with extra, those extra layers of life experience that I'm gonna be needing and using and step trying to step into it's it's something also um you know i had i've had such incredible luck to spend big swaths of time since my daughter's been born with incredible young women who have been caregivers for me and for my daughter and and to you know that is like a real stripping back of all boundaries and barriers and um you know being in a pandemic scenario with uh, with like a brand new little being on earth and how to help her, you know, understand life and what's the, what, how much laughter is in the room and how, and how are we inhabiting these really tough moments? And uh, I felt also just like I was, I was folding back to understand the innate strength in, in, in being around women in their twenties, you know, and, and then, a lot of my friends are 10, 15 years older than me. So being in, in watching people who I consider to be peers entering their 50s and 60s. And it's sort of like, oh, whoa. And, and you know, a, a good friend at the beginning of the pandemic, my, you know, uh, one of these younger women said, you know, I've never spent any time with any anyone in their 40s because I had my friends and then my, you know, maybe babysitters. And then there was my parents and they were in their 50s. And so I thought, teens 20s and 50s was sort of life but 30s and 40s were you know not something i knew about and i would have been afraid of or thought that's old but spending time with you i understand you know so all these ideas we have as women about you know uh, what youth means what old age means what you know the maiden mother crone uh triptych that has been around forever 
implies certain things about women that we maybe haven't, you know, sublimated and we don't understand. We believe there to be a diminishment of power through time with women and, and the opposite sort of men become these sort of aristocratic sort of silver haired, you know, um, like authority bearers or something. And uh, I, I just feel like the women I've encountered in my, who are in their twenties, they don't have that built in stuff. Somehow there's something else going on. Their baseline belief system isn't about this diminishment of women through time. And I'm kind of like, okay, wow, the, the patriarchy's taken a back seat for Gen Z or something. And I don't, you know, or it's certainly not as, a, as much a presumed baseline, or there's more act activation to fight that back and have that not be the case. And so I, I find myself learning, really learning from my the women who are my elders and the women who are my youngers, you know, and it should be a word instead of just elders. What about youngers? You know, because there's the the mentorship of someone younger than you would not really be what you'd think. You'd think experience equals knowledge, but there's actually something I, I learned, the baseline knowledge in in uh, these younger women around me. And so maybe, you know, one night, the idea of this inter intergenerational comparing of notes and what is, where's the Venn diagram and all, you know, what is shared by all of these is the desire to live fully and feel empowered by each other and maybe have the timeline not be one, you know, like an arrow pointing towards the casket, but it can be an aspirational arrow pointing back to, you know, to imagine, you know, I listened to a, an amazing lecture between, I want to say Alice Monroe and I don't know, another Canadian elder stateswoman writer. I don't remember who, um, but Alice Monroe, you know, I, I was sitting talking to another woman, another author that she'd known for 40 years and they were laughing on CBC in front of some sort of, um, audience you know some some live discussion about the how old they felt at 30 and then they just both started laughing and took up oh pardon me they took up oh you're fine like 30 seconds of national radio airtime with these two older women just busting a gut about how they thought they were old at 30 or something and i just felt the warmth and like self-love in their understanding that there was so much more they hadn't they hadn't been able to fathom when they were younger, you know? And I, I really, somehow it struck me and I felt I felt excited about getting older just by hearing their laughter about, about the stories we tell ourselves in our heads or how airtight these ideas are until, you know, they crack and then there's more air gets in and you learn more. And so maybe it's just the song was sort of about, you know, there's a line in there about, um, we compare our graying braids, you know, the idea, because I've always had this idea that I want to be this gray braided, sparkly eyed 91 year old who just has my sense of humor forward. You know, that's heart open, sense of humor forward. That would be the goal. And so, you know, here we are, the pandemic, I, I mean, hasn't happened to me yet, but a lot of my friends went white through oh the pandemic or they already were, but they've been dying their hair or something. So there was this sort of, this rising up into their, you know, the white witch kind of moment <laughs> of their lives. And it was exciting. And and similarly, you know, we made the video for Boro Trouble and we were in the thick of it. And later in the day, we understood there were equally contributing women in the room who were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. 
And that wasn't something that we'd done on purpose. That was just like, who's the right person to have around? Oh, it's her, it's her, it's her. you know. With of course our male collaborators who are badass too, but it was uh it was um it was one of those accidents that we all got a kick out of because no one was saying there's more authority in the 50 year old than the 20 year old everyone just understood their role and that all opinions were valued and it felt kind of you know it felt like a real um yeah a, a really beautiful accident that sounds beautiful i it's a space that i hope that i'll get to be in someday honestly i love i mean very different um but I go, so I go line dancing every Monday. This is relevant, but uh, it's a, a queer run line dancing night. Um, I myself am, though not a queer person, I, I'm profoundly grateful to get to go to the space all the time. And it's intergenerational. So you see a lot of like younger queer people in their like 20s and 30s there. But there's also like a few like um, older gay men that come every week that are like in their 50s, 60s. Actually, I don't know if one of them's even almost 70, but like seeing them exist and seeing like the respect that the younger queer people have for the older queer people and vice versa mm -hmm. is really beautiful because I know in that community, it's extremely important because obviously the elders, much like for us women, you know, the elders are the ones that got us to where we are. They're the ones who fought for, for either women's rights or queer rights and so there's that respect but there's also these opportunities for the older people like you said to learn from the younger people and getting to bear witness to that every single week because I go every week I'm obsessed is is <laughs> such a beautiful thing you know sounds amazing yeah it's yeah. Like a really healthy positive space it's literally the best yeah if you're ever uh, in LA on a Monday or Thursday look up uh, stud country at Club Bahia it is the most fun Thing that you could ever do we also line dance to a combo of like traditional country music but then we'll like swap out songs for like caroline polacek and madonna and britney spears and line dance to them so it's it's pure euphoria um as as we kind of circle to the end now um i started with the opening track and i'm ending with the closing track because i think with i mean with everything we've talked about with everything that this album holds I love that you're ending this album on such a tender note, a, such a like encouragement to to I know that you wrote this song for your friends, an encouragement to feel and to be wherever you're at, no matter what it is that you're living through. Yeah, it's um you know, the the isolate the experience we all had of isolation. I think we learned the value of connection, right? It wasn't so much about the the kind of um, happenstance connection of standing at a bus stop and there's other humans near you or something. That, of course, is was 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 bizarre to lose, or 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 faces, you know, to not see casual smiles on the street or whatever. But but really, it was who reached into your bubble, who found their way into your actual interior. You know what normally um maybe wouldn't be so porous and welcoming of hey how you doing in there um except for your very dearest and closest friends i think <clears throat> we I, I mean i can't really speak for everyone and i'm sure as many humans as there are on earth that's how many versions of the pandemic occurred but um but i really felt um my my in interior monologue was 
became more dialogue. It became more, um, I learned from other people's interior monologues. We were kind of comparing those ticker tapes um, and and finding what was, you know, what was a baseline common denominator. And it was all, you know, as, it's sort of interesting because as much as I, I made a podcast series with Robbie Lackritz about people's, you know, quiet interior baseline versions of reality and it expresses itself in, we, it was called Pleasure Studies around the last album. And um, we interviewed like so many different types of people, but where their stories met was in the sort of underpinning of experience, sort of how does ever, how do people respond to adversity? And then we'd have three stories and we'd weave them together so that you could see that as as much as you think you don't have anything in common with X, Y, Z, so-and-so, the other, you know, people doing such different things than you in the world, they're, they're actually, come, they're, they're like all the root systems go down to the same aquifer, which is getting over, you know, um, I guess I don't even know there's in, there's so many versions of it, but have, having to develop fortitude when things are rough or having to um, face your own propensity to a darkness and how does that serve you or not serve you? Or there's just a lot in common, right? And through the pandemic, I, I found more in common than, than not, you know? So th that, like you just said, the start with where you you are, it was sort of an important feeling was this, this isn't going to change quickly. This isn't going to change. Uh, maybe the external conditions are never going to change. So all we have is this interior ticker tape and how much control are we going to take of put our fingers on the keyboard and decide what's said in, to, in, in, in our interior monologue. And, you know, just aspire to have a bit of um, softness and compassion for exactly how messed up you might be today, you know? So I suppose it was, again, a message as much to them as to me, you know, um, to just be all right with the ebb and flow or the, um, yeah, the, just the, um, yeah, I don't know, just the imperfection and the, the lapping of the waves. Like I said, there's always another moment to try again, start over and um, song for sad friends. Yeah. I, I felt grateful to find it in a way because it was sort of the closest I could get to giving them a hug at that time. <laughs> Multitudes is available now wherever you normally get your music. This podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by myself, Sophia Lobercaro, and the artwork is by Meg Wilford. If you liked this episode, please make sure to rate it, to follow us, and to ring the bell for future episode notifications. I know it sounds like such a small thing, and I'm sure you hear it from lots of different podcasts, but it really does help me to grow and to continue to get to do what I do. So thank you very much. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. 
Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.